See? When did you form the trio? What year was that? Uh, I think it was 11. 11? 2011. Hmm. That's nuts, man. 10, ten year anniversary? That don't something. feel right. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it was like a couple years ago, man. <laughs> no, it's been a minute. <laughs> let's talk Ain't about nothing some, wrong. Let's talk about some music. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm Robin D.G. Kelly. And this is Errol Garner Uncovered. Who is Errol Garner to you? Errol Garner's ideas are just, uh, they're very musical, but they're also very intelligent. Mm. You know, I think uh, the lines he plays, especially his his rhythm, his yeah. sense of rhythm is just, uh, that's, that's just absolutely incredible. He sounds like a band, you know? He sounds like a complete band. You know, when his right hand is going and pushing and pulling the time and creating all this tension, it's creating the tension because the left hand comping is another member of the band. Right. That's wild. Right. I'm not even sure I've ever really, really heard someone do that. If I'm, you know, not, not to that level of mastery. This man should have been the star that, yes. that he right. was, exactly. you know? Yes, exactly. I'm Pete Lockhart, senior producer for Octave Music. On this special episode of Errol Garner Uncovered, Dr. Kelly is joined by bassist Christian McBride and pianist Christian Sands. Our two guests go way back, having toured the world and recorded together for a number of years in McBride's award-winning trio. Together with Dr. Kelly, they explore the joyous steps of Garner's Grammy-nominated album, Up in Errol's Room. Originally released in 68, the record is a hard-grooving quartet session that turns into a full-blown party with the addition of horns, impeccably arranged by Don Sebesky. Here's host, Robin D.G. Kelly. Welcome to Earl Garner Uncovered. Um, I'm joined here by the great Christian Sands and Christian McBride, two of my favorite Christians. Thank you for coming oh, and thank welcome. You. Thank you very much for having us. Always a joy, brother. I want to jump right into the question um, I always begin with, and that is, uh, who is Earl Garner to you? Errol, to me, you know, uh, is the stepping stone in jazz piano, in improvisational piano, mm. you know. Uh, he's done so many things just musically. He's done so many things uh, artistically. Uh, he's done so many things business-wise. I mean, Errol was the complete package as far as... Uh, uh, a world entertainer, right. you know? Um, and I was first introduced to him uh, through the great, late Dr. Billy Taylor. Um, and, you know, Errol is just, uh, and continues every time I hear him, every time I, I look something up or I hear a, a, um, just anything that he does, it always astounds me. It always mm-hmm. is uh, perplexing because, you know, the amount of piano he plays is just incredible. You know, and then also just how he's influenced the rest of the world and the rest of piano after him. Right. You know, right. Uh, really amazing. You have a special relationship to the Earl Garner Project because you are the creative ambassador. Yes. Uh, I know that Jerry Allen um, had recruited you to uh, participate in that extraordinary three piano um, salute at Monterey Jazz Festival. Yes. Jason, yourself, mm-hmm. and Jerry. Can you talk about? Um, just how you got involved, Jerry's relationship um, uh, to you and to Earl, and just and what does it mean to be the creative ambassador to a project like this? Ah, a lot of really great questions, really deep questions, you know, because uh, uh, it, it means a lot to me in a more personal way because, uh, as many of you know, I used to study with Dr. Billy Taylor. Uh, I was a, a, a protege of his. Uh, and at the same time, I also met Jerry Allen and she was working and studying with him as well, you know, uh, and, uh, working with Jerry and just knowing her and just, uh, she was a beautiful person, mm. an amazing musician as we know. Um, and she was asked to be 
sort of the creative ambassador of the Earl Garner Jazz Project and they were celebrating the music of uh, Concert by the Sea. And when she was putting this group together, uh, she decided to ask uh, Jason Moran and myself to be a part of it. And I've already, you know, worked with Jerry. I was also studying with Jason Moran as well. Mm -hmm. So all of this is just a continuation of my study as a musician, my study as a pianist. Uh, but also the history of jazz piano, you know, um, hearing the stories of Errol Garner through Dr. Billy Taylor, who was there, who knew him, who, you know, was around uh, hearing Errol develop, hearing Errol, you know, uh, create his music. You know, all of this is tied into where we are today. Um, when I was working with Jerry uh, in preparing for the concert, uh, we both... Um, or practicing the music she would have me come up to new york and we would uh sit in a practice room and just go through his music go through the concert by the sea uh catalog mm -hmm. you know and break down you know piece by piece uh, uh measure by measure sometimes like what we heard he was doing you know what was he doing the left hand what was he doing the right hand how is he locking in the rhythm section you know uh how is he playing deep in the piano on the left side and not getting in the way of the bass or or doing these over the bar uh rhythm stylings that he did and not throwing off the drums you know like we would talk about those things and also how that affected us as pianists today and what can we use from that information you know uh and then uh fast forward her un untimely passing uh, I had a chance to see her before she passed um, in the hospital bed. And we got a chance to, you know, sort of uh, talk uh, to one another. And, you know, we were listening to music and we listened to Errol Garner. We listened to her records. We listened to just anything that she really wanted to listen to. You know, she'd point in motion to um, like what she wanted to hear, you know, on my iPod that I had. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was sort of a... a really uh amazing thing because sort of after that i got a call from uh from peter and susan who mm -hmm. are a part of the errol garner project and they asked me to basically continue what jerry was right. doing so all of this is just really personal to me because this is not only just a a personal journey from where i've been uh, but also just as music as a whole and piano as a whole, you know, right. you see where it's come from and it's my job now to take it and to push it forward. Right. Yeah. Well, Jerry's spirit is everywhere in exactly. this project and, yeah. and I appreciate it. And Mr. McBride, let me just begin because there's a lot we have to talk about. <laughs> but let's just begin with the question. So, so who is Earl Garner to you? Uh, well, allow me to say first about uh, what an honor this is to speak with such a celebrated erudite scholar <laughs> such as yourself. Uh, right. it's, a, it's a pleasure to see you always. And uh, my, you. My, my young brother, Christian Sands, you you just doing it to death, man, mm -hmm. as James Brown said in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're all just so proud of everything that you're doing, man. And... Um, my relationship with Earl Garner, I, I feel like I'm still building one. You know, mm -hmm. as a bass player, um, uh, I've always connected with pianists who really utilize the the full orchestra, which right. is what the piano is. Right. You know, and growing up listening to a lot of uh, rhythm and blues and a lot of jazz music with with heavy rhythm. You know, people like Art Blakey the Count Basie Orchestra, one of the hallmarks of the Count Basie Orchestra is uh, the rhythm guitar of Freddie Green. You know, like not just the bass playing the 4-4 and the drums, but the the the, the rhythm guitar going, you know, like Errol Garner is like the only pianist I can ever think of who's done that on the piano as well, you know. So he's playing rhythm, he's playing harmony, and he's playing melody. He does all of these things, and he's always orchestrating all the time. So when I think of the piano being the full orchestra, right. I think of Errol Gardner. And how that relates uh, to me personally, how it relates to my instrument, uh, I'm, I'm still working on that. Because the thing is, most 
I would I would say most bass players probably you know you hear somebody Earl Garner playing you're like well you don't need me (laughs) you don't need anybody you know you should just make a career playing solo piano you know there's this uh one very uh popular bass player I I can't call his name but uh this is a great story about uh he told one of his pianists um don't ever play below the s in Hmm. Steinway (laughs) (laughs) all those notes down there that's my area wow And uh, well, I, I'm thinking, well, he surely wouldn't have wanted to oh, play yeah. Earl Garner. Exactly. Because exactly. you know, my man was all mm-hmm. up in it. Uh, I think my first introduction to Errol Garner was um, through my childhood friend, Joey D. Francesco. Mm. Joey, of course, um, being, I believe, the, the world's greatest organist. Uh, he was also one of these, uh, I, I met Joey when I was 12 and, uh, he was a year older than me and he sounds, he sounded then like he does now. Right. And playing piano and being a a historian, particularly of all these great organists, Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, Mm -hmm. Jimmy McGriff, Fats Waller, whoever it was. And so we would listen to some Jimmy Smith record. And he says, oh, that's his Earl Garner sound. He changed the setting on the organ and what he was playing, you know, like with the with the tight blocks, you know, yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Joey said, yeah, that, that's, that's the Earl Garner thing. I said, well, what's the Earl Garner thing? And then he demonstrated it on the piano. This is Joey DeFrancesco, 13 years old, demonstrating <laughs> Earl Garner on the piano, right? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, okay, dig it. I, I can dig that. And um, I think the first record I heard was uh, Concert by the Sea. Hmm. And um, I, Joey nailed it. Because once I heard it, I went, oh, okay, I, I dig it. And then, of course, every high school band across the world played Misty, right? right? Yeah, right. And then the more I started to learn about Errol Gardner, I, I realized that uh, he was one of the very few musicians that uh, cracked that glass ceiling in jazz where he became a, a star. You know, he became a big star and an influence outside of the jazz world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that doesn't happen very, very often in the history of jazz. Right. And uh, the fact that he actually had a a hit song, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, right. you, you, there are hit songs like The Sidewinder, and then there's hit songs like Song For My Father and things like that. But then you have songs like, like Singers cover. Look <laughs> you know at me. Johnny Mathis, right. you know what I mean? Sarah Vaughn, that's what you call a hit. That's that's one of them songs where you just look at me. You can watch TV all day and watch the checks come through the the, the mail <laughs> slot. You know what I mean? Look at me. Now that's that's a hit record. <laughs> right. So uh, uh, I'm. It's been a thrill to learn more about uh, Errol Garner through you two cats. And of course, um, the show that we did mm-hmm, on, right. on Errol and Jazz Night in America, that yeah, was just, yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't know anything at all about Martha Glazer. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, learning about her was just, uh, that was eye-opening. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You describe yourself as a bass player, but of course you're also a composer. You're also a band leader. You're also an educator. Uh, you also, you know, of course we know you host um, NPR's Jazz Down in America and the Lowdown uh, and Artistic Advisor for Jazz Programming at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, Artistic Director of Newport Jazz. In other words, you are in this music in a way that is so deep and institutional and so vibrant and important that in some ways, you know, you, you have this much bigger view of both the history and the impact that a figure like like Earl Garner would have. So um, 
just I want to make sure that you know you're not too humble <laughs> about <laughs> about that. All of those um, gigs that you named, yeah, I'll probably do all of them at like C minus level. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I, I I wouldn't say that at all. I'm, I'm and, like I'm like a good. You know, I'm like a good quarterback. You know, I'm like I'm like uh, Trent Dilfer. <laughs> like I won't lose the game, but you know, yeah, I'll we'll cut all that. Out. But I'm not getting sacked. Right, right. <laughs> well, I, I do know, and then and then also as as really the, the great. I just compare myself to Trent Dilfer. Oh my gosh, <laughs> right. as a as a virtuoso basis that you are, you've also played in countless trio settings, and um, and I'd love to hear more about what it means to play in a trio setting. But also one of the things I would just, I want to give some context for this, the, the album we're going to talk about today, which is called Up in Earl's Room. Yeah. And it's interesting for a lot of reasons. One is that it has horns. Mm-hmm. Um, and these horns are added in later. Mm-hmm. So that's something I think we've got to sort of talk about and then also talk about what it meant to make what became one of his best-selling LPs since Concert by the Sea. Uh, in 1968, you know, I mean, and I'd love to hear your your take on this because 68 is a, it was released in 68. This is a time when uh, we think of the music uh, in terms of either the jazz avant-garde or uh, rock and roll, pop music, the White Album, uh, the Beatles, and yet uh, uh, Up in Earl's Room made the top 20 uh, billboard. For LP, yeah. jazz LPs. First of all, this is one of my favorite records mm. because I, I say this is a dance record. Mm. You know, everything that he plays, uh, he's so locked in. And he's he's grooving so hard that you have to dance to it, you know. And I think part of the uh, reason why it did so well, I think, is because it reached people in that way. It made you move, you know. When you're listening to it, I mean, today, if mm. you listen to it, you uh, you know, um, you just want to move. Right. You want to move. You want to, you know, rock step. You want to do a whole bunch of these things. And uh, he's also playing tunes like, you know, uh, Watermelon Man. Mm-hmm. He's playing tunes like Groove and High, uh, Girl from Ipanema. Right. Those are songs that I started out learning. You know, when I first began this music, those are like the first few mm-hmm. songs I learned. You know, so to hear those songs again, but done that way uh orchestrated differently or just just the the way he's you know in the pocket i mean mm-hmm. it's so incredible you know it's it's this is one of my favorite records mm-hmm. yeah. yeah when i first heard this recording um I, I i i really enjoyed the recording but it really screamed 1968 in a good way right. in a good way uh i think it's important to uh you know in listening to this record uh, I always try to keep context in mind, right? Mm-hmm. So I think about uh, what Earl Gardner's career had been up to that point by you know playing almost exclusively trio, right. and here we are in 1968, where uh, one of the biggest catchphrases in America at that time was soul. James Brown was the hottest artist in in black music. I got the feeling. Uh, Aretha Franklin. Everything coming out of Atlantic and Stax and Motown. That was the year where black black dance music was really coming to the forefront of American culture. And in the jazz world, you were either going one way or the other. You you either had to go soul jazz, which is where you know Stanley Tarantino, mm-hmm. uh, Les McCann, Ramsey Lewis right. were going, or you kind of went out. You know, you had the the the. It was the dawn of the AACM, and Archie Shepp was mm-hmm. very hot, and um, uh, Albert Eiler was mm-hmm. was still very hot. Ornette was still breaking ground. Mm-hmm. So there was this sort of middle ground that was sort of like you almost got the sense where like people like Horace Silver, Art Blakey, the real hardcore swingers were kind of getting a little bit of shade, you know. Mm-hmm, yeah. They were like, okay, y'all, y'all had y'all time. We either going here or there. And uh, you mentioned about the Beatles with mm-hmm. the White Album, and 
I think there was also a time in 1968 where album sales, like the record business, was booming, booming, yes, booming. Yes. And I'm sure there was always some sort of commercial pressure, uh, particularly for someone who already had some some name in the jazz world, like an Earl Garner. Right. You know, you get like a little nudge, like, hey, Earl, we got an idea. Right. How about some... Uh, do something like a little funky, you know, perhaps <laughs> sell, thing you know, per- perhaps sell a couple of more albums. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. But sort of to hear Errol Gardner play with like this kind of groove, kind of groovy sort of, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> playing water development. It was it was very, very joyful for me. Yeah. You know. It's interesting, uh, you know, I really appreciated what you said about Joey DeFrancesco and, and the, um, the organ, yeah. because a couple things. One, this is a new rhythm section for Earl. Now he has Ike Isaacs, the veteran bass player from Ohio. Uh, and then the drummer's Jimmy Smith, uh, that's Jimmy with the IE from right. Newark, who played with Larry Young. Jimmy right. McGriff and Richard Groove right. Home. I mean, he, he's a yes. he's a drummer, and this is before he joined. Groove drummer. Yeah. Uh, he, he, yeah. Before he joined uh, Earl, and you know, and then he ends up adding also Jose Manguel, mm-hmm. uh, and who played with you know Stan Kenton Machito, uh, and for Earl, he loved he he loved percussion. He he recorded with Candido, mm-hmm. he recorded with Johnny Pacheco. So that was that made sense. So imagine. You've got this swinging drummer. You got this uh, swinging bass player. Um, they're all new, and then you add uh, a horn section that has a name. They call them the brass bed. You know, right. and and you know, there's a whole tradition of there's Tijuana brass. Right. There's right. the horny horns. That's right. right. There's the idea right. of naming a horn section. Right. The brass bed. Name. Right, and the brass bed. You know, you had you know Jerome Richardson, yeah, Pepper just, Adams, James Cleveland, right. Marvin. I mean, really amazing people arranged by Don Sebesky. Yeah. Now, the 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 quartet portion of the recording was made November '67. The horns were added, arranged by Don Sebesky, uh, and recorded February 15, 1968. After the fact, so I had to write. So yeah. Sebesky wrote these arrangements in relationship to these tracks already made. Now, this is where I want to I want to really hear your perspective on what did that bring? And h- how do we understand it, especially when Earl Garner himself said in an interview in 68 that his influences are not individual pianists. He says, right. my influences are bands. Right. I, that, that was pretty common at that time, the overdub horns after the fact. Uh, I know that happened on quite a number of, like, uh, Creed Taylor productions, like uh, a few CTI albums, mm-hmm. you know, put the rhythm tracks in and uh, overdub the horns later. They would have to study the track to see where they can fit in stuff, you know. So uh, I'm sure Don Sebesky... Uh, had his share of those types of projects where he would listen to the rhythm tracks and see where he could not get in the way. You know, now the question I have is, I, I have a feeling, Earl didn't hear what he he was just as surprised when he heard it. It was as new to him as it was to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm guessing maybe I'm sure they told him said, listen, we're gonna get Don Sebesky to, to write some horns on top of that. I don't know what he's going to write, but, you know. I'm with you on that, Christian. You know, I think there was this this moment where, you know, he's like, okay, this is going to be a quartet record. Mm. And then maybe later on, we're like, oh, we should add some horns to it. You know, just like that was happening a lot then. But also when you you listen to it, uh, in a way, Errol left so much space Uh enough for, for them to do that, for them to do that, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's perfect spacing too. So in a way, right. there's also that that wonder of like, well, did he have that in mind? And right. Did he right. preconceive? Right. You know, right. I mean, because he was always orchestrating anyway, right? And then also the stabs that the the trumpets are doing, you know, like the uh, or when they're uh, doubling with flutes and, mm-hmm. and piccolo, you know, like right. there's these moments where. Uh, 
I mean, it's really just all arrows arrangements anyway, mm -hmm. you know, and they're yeah. just like, well, we're just going to put this here, put this here, put this here, you know. Um, but when you when you hear it, it, it just sounds perfect. It sounds like they everyone was in the same room. Yeah. It sounds like, OK, this is exactly how the arrangement went. And we already know that Errol was a master of just creating arrangements on the spot right. anyway. Right. right. You know, and especially when you have a different rhythm section and everything, you know. So it's really uh, an incredible project that they've put together. Okay. <laughs> well, you, what, what are your reactions? Although we got some already. Oh, not the grooves. <laughs> right. It's Groove City. It's Groove City. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I love that pounding left hand. <laughs> yeah. Know, that's, that's, that's at the end, that, that tension release thing. That's what I was saying. You know, Errol just had this, this pocket. Like, you know, he was so rhythmic. I mean, everything. So rhythmic, so harmonic, so just melody. I mean, he had everything. But when you're listening to it, he leaves the way he orchestrates. He leaves so much space. Mm -hmm. You know, he he creates these call and answer things, and I think he just does that anyway, just with the audience. You know, right. because just on his trio records, right. uh, or just any records without the horns, you know, he does these things where he'll play a phrase and then he'll wait. You know, and the rhythm section doesn't necessarily answer. React, right? Yeah, they're just right. you know leave the space, leave the space. You know. Yeah. And so I think in that space that he leaves, that's when the audience is, they react, you know. Right. And right. so I think just on a, a, a arrangement side of it, when he's left those spaces and those pockets, you know, I think Don was like, cool, I'll, I'll fill in there. Yeah. You and know? So, so it's, that's actually a really good point because so many of those lines are echoes, just echoes yeah. of what Earl's playing. And, and, and then uh, just the way... Um, with you know, with with the echoes that he, he's putting in, I mean the the arrangement side of it too is also very arrow esque mm -hmm. as well. Just the way the horns kind of come in, or like the 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 uh, the harmonies that they play, you right. know, certain certain ones, you know, right. um, it's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, Brad, you write for horns for your, uh, your yeah, band, I, so. I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Horn right. Um, but yeah, I, I think as an arranger, you you really you try to pay attention to what uh, what the leading voice is doing, and and you write around that. So uh, Don Sebesky has always had a really great ear. So mm -hmm. I mean, he, right. it's obviously he was able to understand. You know, obviously he understood the aesthetic and what uh, Errol was playing. I, I think he did a did a wonderful job. What what I'm listening to is that. Uh, how just how clean his chops are when he plays these lines because looking at photos of his hands and seeing videos of Errol Gardner's 
fingers. He didn't have skinny fingers. Right. He had yeah. like real thick fingers. Yeah. And he almost almost had like bass player hands, you know. But still mm. he has like this his touch is just spot on, right. never sloppy. All the lines are just perfect, right mm -hmm. on the money, perfect time, great execution. And it's just like, uh, I think that's amazing how um, sort of his his physical stature would, I, I guess, would, like how he plays, you wouldn't think his hands look like that. Mm -hmm. You know, right, 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 I right. think of his hands, you know, you listen to him play, I almost think of his hands being like, you know, like like yours, Sans, <laughs> you know. You, you you got like really nice hands. Well, well, you know thank what I mean? You, yeah, and I and I've seen pictures of Errol Gardner. It's like my man's got some nice thick kunga <laughs> bass playing hands, you know? It's like, wow, how's this chop so clean? You know? Right. Yep. And the keys are the same size. So, Dig it. you know. Yeah. 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 That's that's deep. I mean Oscar Peterson had huge hands, mm, but yeah. like but his fingers weren't yeah. like Right, yeah, you know, just like yeah. big, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But part of that too is, uh, you know, when you watch him, his positioning, he sits a little above the keyboard. I was just going to ask you too. about that. And mm -hmm. so when you do that, you kind of have more of um, just on a on your arms are at an angle, so you kind of have more room to, you know, use velocity and, and speed, you know, mm -hmm. with that. And also just just on a sight. Uh, side, you know, you're looking down on the keyboard, right. so mm -hmm. you know it's easier to, well, so to speak, easier to uh, get around the keyboard, right. you know, and kind of go and be cleaner because you know your arms aren't at a at a certain point where you're. I call them uh, T Rex arms, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? Which gives it a different sound too. I mean, yeah. but the thing is, Errol has so many different sounds he right. uses, you know. Uh, like when we were talking, when we were commenting on the the little left hand, mm -hmm. uh, right hand conversation mm -hmm. at the end of the tune, right. you know, uh, well towards the end of the uh, the last vamp there, and uh, just that sound. I mean, it wasn't like a clean sound. I mean, compared to all the rest of the music that was going on, like this was real, just dark. Right. This tone that he had, you know, it was like, okay, I'm gonna create this certain mode and this certain mood mm -hmm. while playing this, you know? Right, so right. he, he had a, 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 just a whole bunch of weapons in his bag. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's a genius. the melody he is see uh i'm guessing errol and and and, and monk were tight <laughs> right 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 man oh they were they, it's true they yeah, were right. they were tight I mean, monk love errol Garner. you can right. tell and what i love about first of all what his intros i feel like his intros are him hmm. yeah. you know i feel like the tune is for you but the intro is for me <laughs> right, right, right. you know because the way he's playing girl from me like the just bing like the way he's playing it it's just he's he it's who he is mm -hmm. he's a personality he's he's quirky but he's also uh just fun mm -hmm. you know he's promoting like this is a fun tune but we're also gonna just just go we're gonna go with this we're i don't know where it's gonna go i don't know when i'm gonna stop you know we're yeah. just gonna go for it yeah i have to say listen to that version of the song it made me understand uh, an old school black term, copacetic. Yeah, like, I know yeah, what that right. means. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, right. that's exactly <laughs> it. Right. I mean, my man is just just in it. It is. Exactly. I love it. I love this mm -hmm. intro. There's so much lineage in that because, like, see, I've always thought of when I when I hear Duke Ellington play, I hear Monk. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, when I hear Andrew Hill play, yeah, I hear Monk. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, I hear Jason Moran play. I hear Andrew Hill. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, right. and then so I'm hearing all four of them cats right. in that right. introduction. Right. Exactly. It's like you know when, exactly. when I hear Cecil Taylor, I hear this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, right. like, but also when I hear Ahmad Jamal, I hear, mm -hmm. this, you know, like, Mr. So, right. Jamal. Right. That's, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. right. That's absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's jump to the coffee song. The coffee song is, is, 
is not a household song. I love this. Uh, it's and it's one of these. You know, Frank Sinatra recorded in 1946, yes. made mm-hmm. it famous. But it's like one of these songs that's not a standard. Yeah. But, but uh, and you got Jerome Richardson. You know, that's how uh, I learned the song the, from Sinatra yeah. on, oh, the, really? uh, yeah. on the Ring a Ding Ding album. Right. Stop it, stop it, stop it, real quick. I hear you and Jerry. De- see, yeah, because <laughs> it just, can you play it again? Mm. Oh, that's just, mean. That's <laughs> mean. Man. There's a lot of information in this. Man, it's an intro. Yeah, it's like we setting this up. how at some point he kind of slows the tempo down on his line but this but is still in tempo right. still right. locked in right. that's he, nuts he's so free mm-hmm. that's he nuts his phrasing is that's some serious stupid. left right brain stuff going on there tell him I think it's amazing because um I, I don't get the sense that Don Sebesky had the time to go, like, get with Earl Gardner and say, hey, can you play your solo for me again right. and slow it down so I can get the right. voicings, so I can write it out for the horns? He had to hear it right. and figure out what it was. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the man has great ears, but to be able to hear, like, all those inner voicings, yeah, man. he nailed it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nailed it. off to Don Sebesky for right. having such a good ear. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's all those flat, all, all, that, all those flat nines and right, stuff all in know. the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And then just the way Arrow, I mean, just, the way he plays on this, it's just, yeah. it's perfect. You know, I couldn't hear it in a, a, a different way, you know? Just how he approaches the song, how he plays it, you know? Just his left hand, how it's locking in, you know, just everything. That's why I say, like, this record is a dance record because it's just the floor is there, you know, the foundation is there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's beautiful. And I mean, you probably know this, but this particular session when it was just the quartet, they made a lot of recordings. I mean, it was a yeah. You mean massive, from this session? From this session. From this, oh, from this session. It was a yeah. massive. Wow. I mean, basically three rec- three LBs came wow. out of that. I mean, Ready Take One came out of this. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like a lot of music, and they were tight. Yeah. yeah. Tight. Yeah. You know? As you can hear. Mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. I've always been in awe of uh, Eric Gardner's left hand. I mean, it's, it's yeah. always Me working. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that, that intro alone is just... Uh, not only is it is it uh, t- 
technically astounding, but just musically astounding. Right. You know? Well, it kind of goes back from uh, uh, what you were saying about how he didn't have a favorite pianist necessarily. Mm-hmm. He had favorite bands right. because he sounds like a band. You know, right. he sounds like a complete band. You know, when his right hand is going and pushing and pulling the time and creating all this tension, it's creating the tension because the left hand, his left hand comping is another member of the band. Right. You know, it's just like, okay, well, there's no guitar here, so I got it. Exactly. The bands that he listened to and most influenced on him were Jimmy Lunsford and Chick Webb. Yeah. Love Chick Webb. And Chick Webb, talk about just an amazing swinging drummer and band leader. Absolutely. That that's that's his thing. Uh, cheek to cheek, the Berlin tune. Mm-hmm. Um, here, you know, you could hear the percussionist. You can hear Jose Mangual, but his left hand. I want you could listen to his left hand because at some point he's playing the clave. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he's also yeah. known for like four on the beat. Right. He's playing the clave and he's playing these black chords that are so funky. Maybe right. we could Ooh. cue that just, up. Yeah, just just for the record mm-hmm. too is just you know I mean he's he's mainly I guess known for the four. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, right. four on the floor, if you want right, to call right, it that. Right. You know, but really, I mean, just his comping alone. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Just the way he locks everything in. Yes. track in particular reminds me of Eddie Palmieri. No, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yep. just the way that he's laying into that Waheo yeah. Montuno pattern, you know. Mm-hmm. And then also just how he's 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 floating like doing, doing these like rhythmic stabs, you know, yeah. very very like uh Latin jazz, very very percussive, you know, and just the 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 way that they're interacting. I mean, you know, at, can we can we Cue up that last bit of the the vamp. Yeah, here. <laughs> and he's grunting where he where he's hearing the hit. <laughs> That's like Eddie too. Right, right, right. Right here. Keep going. Yeah. So when the horns come in, they'll kind of just lean into it. 
Like that right there, yeah, is some you know when you hear the the greatest Latin jazz pianist like right there, mm-hmm. that's it. The horns weren't even there yet, right. so so the right. fact that he's just laying in it like that, he's an orchestrator, right? yeah, right. man, and he's a uh, 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 he's got a variety mm-hmm. of ways to orchestrate, you know. Yep, Errol Gardner's ideas are just uh, they they they're very musical but they're also very intelligent mm-hmm. you know i think uh very um the lines he plays especially his 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 rhythm his yeah. sense of rhythm is just uh that's, that's just absolutely incredible you know I, I i think about the track we listened to um a, a coffee song where he, right. he's playing the line and he kind of pulls back on the tempo just a little bit but the left hand remains in tempo right that's wild right i'm not even sure i've ever really really heard someone do that if I'm you know not not to that level of mastery Mm -hmm. and all the intros including this one here and uh, all of the stuff that that Christian pointed out it's uh this man should have been the star that that he was you know yes exactly this is this is the theme right I mean every time I do a podcast this always comes up I mean this is one of the real great artists of the 20th century, and he's not as famous as he should be. Yeah. It's going to change. Yeah. yeah. So, Up in Earl's Room, of course, the title track is an original, it's gospel inflected, you know, you hear that the tambourine. It's one of those songs, I mean, there's no horns, but it really is Earl's song. I wonder if this is, a, you know, Jimmy Smith is playing straight eights. Yeah. And Earl and the rest of the band are swinging. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Triple it up against the street. And it suits it up. Oh, Gordon's like, I don't care what you do, Jimmy, I'm swinging. Mm. <laughs> I wonder if, um, I wonder if Jimmy Smith started playing straight eighths on the drums because that's kind of what they'd worked out. Right. Or if it was sort of, I, I mean, I just got to wonder if it might have been, you know, somebody at the record company like, you know, guys, we, we can't swing on this record. Not, you know, we got to make sure, <laughs> make, we're not going to make sure a couple of tracks, are, you know, like got that, you know, got that boom, boom, chip, boom, boom. You know that 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 right. that, mm-hmm. that beat that the kids like nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just interesting to hear the triplet going up against right, the, right the straight there. But you, you know, know what's interesting too about that? It's like it reminds me of just early gospel, gospel yeah. Yeah. music. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like and and sometimes that happened. You know, so it's an interesting. I don't know if that was a, a, a conscious thing or if that was just a stylistic thing or like how it even yeah. happened. But it it works. I was waiting for. Well, the way Arrow is playing is straight up to some gospel piano. Right. Oh yeah, you know totally. What I mean, that's exactly where he's coming from. Exactly. You know, uh, even just the like pedaling wise, like right. the way he's pedaling the piano and the way he's he's kind of uh, falling into these chords is mm-hmm. very much some gospel sure. piano. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And and like the real the real school. Exactly. Right. You know. You know. Exactly, exactly, well, you know, so it's... It's well, an authentic gospel film. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, that the title of the song is interesting like the because, um, 
you know, it's it's up in Earl's room. There you Earl's go. room yeah. is a sacred space. In the up you know? room. Right, right, right. But that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like a hymn. It sounds like, you know, uh, this is this is what happens when church is let out early. Right. That's right. You know, that's the musicians right. are like, all right, let's go. Yeah, you know? that's right. right. And and speaking of monk again, you know, how mm-hmm. that kind of all ties yeah. in together. You know, pe- I don't think people really pay attention to that monk was a gospel right. exactly. piece, you know. Exactly, Definitely. exactly. This is there's a theme here of why yeah. the music sounds like yeah. that. That's right. Well, you could you could play one foot in the gutter, which was um, right. It was it was actually uh, Clark Terry's tune, but you know Monk made it. Right. Monk, and mm-hmm. and it's it's essentially you know the same. Right. In fact, the same structure of the song. Right. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, we'll let him stand it better by and by. You know, right, 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 right. It's it's interesting. I, I love that. I right. love that. Well, too. people were going to church back then. So you yeah. got you got you got that. You know what that <laughs> because is? Because I go to church. That's exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> you know, but that's but that's what it is. I mean, there's there's that 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 level of uh, that common uh, African American experience, right. which yeah. was. You know, Sunday mornings going mm-hmm. to church right. or all week going to church, right. depending on Depend- which church you went to. Right. Depending that's on, right. yeah. Right. All but week. that was very much that. That's yeah. that's a Pittsburgh. I'm not sure what church he went to, but that is that. Mm-hmm. You know? It's interesting because I, I think throughout a a large period in, in American history, all black music, no matter what right. form it was, I mean, even hardcore, straight up funk in mm-hmm. like mid and late 70s. Almost all of them cats were right. gospel musicians. Lay right. down oh, yeah. the <laughs> That's yeah. Come you on, know, that's right. You know. That's absolutely right. And speaking of speaking of, of a gospel sound, so this is our, the last track, which is a bonus track, True Blues. This is something that was never issued before, and it's only available on this recording. Mm-hmm. So everyone needs to go out and get it. Uh, it's a kind of cool sort of medium tempo blues, but you can actually hear again that yeah. gospel. Right. Uh, inflection right. thrown in there, and not just for good. And what I love about this tune, and 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 McBride would appreciate this. This may be one of the few examples of an Earl Garner tune where he actually gives the bass player some space. <laughs> right. You know, in, in other words, not not just in the introduction, but it's like right. a little moment right. where he's like almost he's basically soloing, yeah. and, and Earl actually pulls back. Which is so weird. I no Ike was surprised. Come on, bro, Ike. <laughs> <laughs> Get it when you can. He <laughs> 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 sounds good on it though. That's right. Yeah, right. Happen again, man. Like the swing rhythm, and then the arrows kind of playing straight yeah. on top. You know, I was hearing that, <laughs> right. that funk groove. Right. Up but that's on the top. thing, man, because Arrow, Arrow can like he goes in between yeah, both of them. Just the way right. he big just time. navigates through the music. Right. It's not exactly, it's not swing, but it's also not straight, and right. it's not not Latin music, and it's not boogaloo. I mean, it's right. it's literally everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the introduction to Groove and High. Uh, which is Dizzy's tune. Um, it's so important that he recorded this because 
Earl's not known as like the bebop pianist, despite the fact that he made that iconic recording with Charlie Barker. Right. Um, and this is a bebop tune, but he doesn't play it like that. He does it his own way. Right. you think you can stomp with that with that piano intro man <laughs> it's brilliant mm-hmm. i can hear that these is. critics now they're like oh that's uh, i won't say who they'll think it is but they right. won't guess arrow right, guard man no but when it comes up you're just like man wow it's it's an amazing yeah that's incredible yeah, yeah. and a lot of people you know have modeled not exactly stylistically but creatively, yeah. how they do their intros, you know, mm-hmm. like when I listen to, like, uh, like Keith Jarrett, you know, and how his intros sometimes they're, you know, like they're verbatim, you know, from the from the tune. But then there's moments where I mean, when he's just creating, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 you know, or her, you know, like these cats, mm-hmm. they just, the the right. amount of creativity that just happens before the tune, exactly, you know. And how they just develop it. I mean, it's really incredible. Yeah. You know. So, um, so much more. I'm getting so much more enlightenment. You know, just uh, the more I get exposed to Errol Garner's genius, it's uh, really wonderful for me to experience just to see uh, how just perfectly rounded everything about his musicality mm-hmm. is. Yeah. You know, his his technique, his ideas, his modernism. Um, it's just what an incredible musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say, it's it's such an honor to do this the podcast, but especially with artists like yourselves who are part of that lineage, who have you know brought so much of of the 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 wholeness, the totality of Earl Garner to your own music. So I just have to say, what an honor it is to have you here, and looking forward to both of you, you know, in terms of serving as a kind of ambassador or ambassadors for this project of bringing Earl Garner to light. It's a huge pleasure speaking with you, Robin. uh, Yes, indeed. It's always a joy for me to be around you and spend time with you, (laughs) seriously. And, and, you know, uh, I don't want to call him by his nickname. but uh, you know. I won't do that. But uh, Sans is, you know, you know you might do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm just uh, honored to be a part of this project. I'm honored to be just sitting here with the two of you you know, and talking about this great man and his music. And I'm just looking forward to what comes next. Well, what comes next is that when you all do a trio together and do the music of Earl Garner hey now. as a kind of reunion, that would be hot. That would be brilliant. Got you. Well, you're talking to the right people <laughs> for that. So that works. Mm-hmm. You know, there you go. How's your schedule looking? I'm 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 looking at you because you you got it. You know the repertoire. <laughs> I got. I'm, I'm gonna send you the music now. <laughs>
Errol Garner Uncovered is a production of Octave Music. Our show is produced by me, Pete Lockhart, with Michael Saltzman and Alex Arif. Our executive producer is Susan Rosenberg. This episode's conversation was recorded at GSI Studios in New York, thanks to our friend Jason Rostowski. You can find the newly expanded and remastered edition of Up in Errol's Room anywhere you listen to music and learn more about our new box sets, Liberation and Swing, at errolgarner.com. If you're enjoying the series, drop us a review in Apple Podcasts or let us know on social media. And don't forget to subscribe so our next episode pops into your feed. It features the wonderful Nicole Mitchell discussing Garner's 1970 album, Feeling is Believing.